now, America's number one show on pop culture and politics. This is the Michael Medved Show. And another great day in this greatest nation on God's green earth. And what a great day it is for politics with all kinds of reverses and double reverses and triple reverses and surprises. The uh, Republicans have been raising and spending a lot of money. But what's astonishing is that, okay, Trump has spent more money than anybody else. DeSantis is second. Who is third? That is a gigantic surprise. No, it's not Nikki Haley. It's not Tim Scott. Who is it? We will tell you on the Michael Medved Show. We'll also take a look at new polling data that indicates that President Trump, the more he gets uh, indicted and the more that he is uh, prosecuted, if not persecuted, the more popular he gets. There's a big new morning consult poll, which is the first poll ever in the campaign to show that Trump has an advantage over Biden. He's beating Biden uh, beyond what is the margin of error. And this at a time when that uh, famous uh, audio tape that Trump knew that he was making uh, about displaying plans for the invasion of Iraq. And this is after his presidency, after he had any right to show these documents to anybody. He's showing them to a group of people, including a publisher and an author and people who are of various aides. So what's the deal? We will play that full tape for you. It's a couple of minutes. And it's hugely controversial. It is the very essence of the Trump prosecution for the possession of those unauthorized documents. We will also be speaking to somebody who became something of a public figure in the first impeachment. It's not because he was somebody who was advocating impeachment. He wasn't. He was a Trump appointee. Gordon Sondland had been appointed uh, by President Trump to be our ambassador to the European Union, which is a very crucial position. Uh, Gordon now has a new memoir. It is called The Envoy, Mastering the Art of Diplomacy with Trump and the World. Uh, it's uh, a real view inside the uh, Trump uh, administration. And uh, we'll be speaking to Gordon Sondland about where he stands now. He describes himself as a Republican, very proudly, and a sensible centrist. Uh, what does that mean? There are more and more sensible centrists who are saying, okay, time for a third party. Because if it's a race between Trump and Biden, uh, they, they're both too old for the job. Trump is 77 now. He would be uh, 78 by the time of uh, the election or any inauguration. Uh, and, and Biden, of course, is 80. He would be 82 by the time because of when his birthday falls, because of uh, by the time he is inaugurated as president for a second term, 86 when he's done. So why is it that people are so fascinated with this third party idea? And uh, is there any chance that any of these marginal figures who are getting so much publicity today, uh, people 
like uh, uh, Cornell West and Robert Kennedy Jr. and Marianne Williamson, could they become serious third-party candidates? We will talk about that with Jonathan Allen of NBC News uh, coming up on The Michael Medved Show. And uh, we'll also be speaking a little bit to Ralph Reed, who is the organizer of that uh, big faith and freedom conference where President Trump spoke and gave a conclusive speech. And he kicked off a new theme to his campaign, which I think is worth discussing. And if you have any calls you want to make about that new theme, you certainly can do so. Call us at one 800 955 1776. What President Trump said is, I'm being indicted for you. That he was wearing as a proud badge of courage, he said, uh, a uh, for every indictment that he received, and where he, he honestly felt that he was being indicted for us. Here is President Trump repeating that line today in New Hampshire, where he is campaigning. This is the former president of the United States, wants to be the next president of the United States. Listen. Democrats, Marxists, communists, and fascists, indict me. I consider it a badge, a great, great, beautiful badge of honor and courage. Because I'm being indicted for you. Okay, the question would be, this seems to be working for him if you believe the polls but if you believe that to be true it's a, a great big beautiful badge of honor and courage where does any of the behavior for which he has been indicted so far which includes playing hush money to porn stars and which includes uh, displaying documents that he admits right on the tape that uh, they, they use, that he knew he was making. He knows he doesn't have any right to those tapes or those documents. He knows that he couldn't de declassify them because this occurred after his presidency. Where is the honor and where is the courage? And he says the indictment is for you. Is there anyone out there who believes that you have been helped because President Trump was indicted? Uh, this is extraordinary. Uh, the uh, President Trump recognizing that he was what he was sharing with a group of people was secret information. Well, this is now on the Trump tape that. Uh, uh, occurred in Bedminster at his uh, New Jersey resort. He said, uh, this is the clip 14. Uh, listen, President Trump. Isn't it amazing? I have a big pile of papers. This thing just came up. Look. This was him. They presented me this. This is off the record, but they presented me this. This was him. This was the Defense Department and him. Wow. We looked at him. This was him. This wasn't done by me. This was him. Yeah. All sorts of stuff. It's pages long. Look. Mm. Wait a minute. Let's see. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I just found. Isn't that amazing? This totally wins my case, you know. Except it is like highly confidential, yeah. <laughs> secret. This is secret information. Yeah. Look, look at this. 
Okay, he understands that it's secret information. And he's like a child when he says it's him, it's him. He's talking about the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Mark Milley, who uh, had prepared, uh, apparently, a, uh, a secret uh, agenda for President Trump about a potential invasion of Iran. Uh, it's all extraordinary. And uh, it's all remarkable. So is what happened uh, yesterday with the failing of the uh, mutiny, of the coup, of the uh, uh, would-be revolution against uh, President Putin in Russia. Uh, people say that Putin is weakened. Part of what you have here has been a pattern in Russian history. There's a good column about that. And frankly, when you think about it and you think about uh, what Russia has been through, not in the last 100 years of communism, but <laughs> in, in the last thousand years, really, Russia has had a unique series of problems like this. And it actually changed my life in ways that I will talk to you about. Uh, that and more coming up with Ralph Reed in a little while here on The Medved Show. The Michael Med. You're listening to the mighty Michael Medved Show. And on the Medved Show, the uh, Trump tape. Uh, there's something about a tape that uh, means more when you actually listen to it than uh, reading about it or reading a transcript. And uh, they write about this um, and the discovery of the tape and the authorization by CNN, which got hold of the tape, uh, which is clearly going to be a very key element in the trial that President uh, Trump is going to be going through in Florida. CNN obtained the audio, this is from the hotline, uh, of former President Trump discussing a classified document in his possession in July of 2021. So it's a half a year since he has left the presidency. Uh, during uh, the recording, Trump hints that the document contains details of a possible U.S. plan to attack Iran. The recording could undercut Trump's recent claim that he didn't have any documents with him and could be critical to special counsel Jack Smith's case against the former president. The episode is one of two referenced in the indictment where prosecutors alleged that Trump showed classified information to others who did not have security clearances. Uh, though some details of the recording were already public, the recording itself was not. Some of Trump's uh, legal team have been aware of the recording since March, since federal prosecutors asked Trump aide Margot Martin about the meeting where the recording took place. Martin was present at that meeting. And uh, one of the things that President Trump says on the uh, tape, he makes it very clear that despite the fact that he said that he had already declassified everything, that this that he was showing off was not declassified. Uh, listen, this is clip 15. 
Uh, yeah. See, as president, I couldn't have eaten less. Yeah. Uh, now I can't, you know, but this is Yeah, they don't have a problem. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. It's so yeah. cool. Okay, isn't that interesting? It's just so cool. Uh, really? And what's so bizarre about this is that he knew that he was being taped. This wasn't a secret tape recorder. He was taping it because it was part of the preparation for a book that Mark Meadows, uh, his chief of staff, was putting out. And uh, uh, here, here is a former Trump lawyer named James Schultz who says that, uh, look, th there's no question that this newly released audio can bolster the government's claim that the ex-president actually violated the Espionage Act. This is clip three. If this evidence is admissible, and I imagine that they're going to try to challenge a number of different, on a number of different fronts, I'm not sure where they, where they make their argument here to exclude this evidence, but if it is admissible in court, it's certainly troubling for their defense at least Trump, for Trump's defense in this. I mean, it, it, make, it bolsters the government's claim under the Espionage Act. It also bolsters their claim, you know, under the obstruction case. Because, you know, one of, his, one of the things he's been saying all along is that he could just, you know, wave a magic wand and, and these, uh, and these um, documents are declassified. And, and in this instance, in his own words, he's saying it's not declassified. So that's, that's very troubling for him, no doubt about it. And, you know, I think the only, ma you know, the big question is going to be what comes in at trial, uh, you know, under the Classified Information Procedures Act. Is this all going to be admissible? Probably so. And it's going to be a big hurdle for them to, to get over. Uh, yeah, it's a big hurdle. And uh, Ari Fleischer, who is a former presidential press secretary for President Bush, He's been a loyal Republican. Uh, he's very much uh, one of those people who wants a Republican nominee, probably Trump, to win this election. But he recognizes that this uh, matter with the tapes and the documents is not something you can avoid or just all of a sudden say, I'm wearing this as a great, big, beautiful badge of honor. Uh, here is uh, Ari Fleischer and his impression. Uh, that's clip six. I don't know what his defense will be over this document, but as somebody who used to routinely handle classified information, I do have to say that is not how you are supposed to handle it. If it is a secret, top secret, whatever the classification is document, you may not show it to anybody who doesn't have such a clearance. It may not leave a skiff. It can't be in a place like Mar-a-Lago, which was not a skiff. So on this, I'm not, a, I'm not sympathetic. I've always said that he shouldn't have been indicted over this. I think that was overreach and it went too far. But I also think that the president went too far in taking classified documents. He should have returned them all when the government said they wanted them back. Okay, again, obviously, if the government says you want them back, well, why not give them back? And meanwhile, with all of this going on, there's a headline, uh, which I alluded to before. Uh, it says that uh, tracking Republicans' 2024 primary support over time, uh, Trump leads Biden by three percentage points in a hypothetical matchup. This is from Morning Consult. 
Former President Donald Trump continues to be the favorite for the Republican Party's 2024 presidential nomination, with 57% of potential GOP primary voters supporting his candidacy. But for the first time since tracking began in December, Trump also leads President Joe Biden by three percentage points in a hypothetical general election matchup outside the survey's margin of error. Uh, here is another surprising aspect of things. The en entrepreneur Vivek Ramaswamy, who was pledged to spend up to $100 million of his own money, he's 37 years old, he is now backed by 6% of potential GOP primary voters, his best showing in morning council surveys so far, following a steady improvement over the past week. Uh, meanwhile, more than four in five potential GOP primary voters, 82%, said they'd never heard uh, anything about former Texas Representative Will Hurd, who just announced his candidacy and actually is a very good guy, one of two black Republicans who are running uh, for the presidential nomination. With, with uh, three black Republicans who's... Oh, yes, that's absolutely right. Don't forget Larry Elder. It's Will Hurd, Larry Elder, and Tim Scott. Thank you very much. And uh, none of them are doing particularly well in the polls. Concerning the idea of President Trump getting united for all of us, indicted for all of us, for us, Chris Christie had a response to that. He's going to be joining our show tomorrow uh, as a guest. But Chris Christie had this to say. Uh, but we will get to that. We will be speaking to Ralph Reed, who was the uh, leader of the organization that invited President Trump to give that speech in which he said, I'm indicted for you. Is this uh, a martyr-like, a heavenly suffering? Uh, we'll get to that and more coming up with Ralph Reed. Is that interesting? Yeah. Medved Show. It is a pleasure to welcome back uh, an old friend, Ralph Reed, who is uh, the chairman of the Faith and Freedom Coalition, which just held a wildly successful uh, get-together in Washington, D.C., at the Washington Hilton, where virtually all of the major presidential candidates on the Republican side uh, showed up and spoke and uh, some of them got very warm responses. Certainly President Trump did. <laughs> some of them got booed and had some warm responses back. That was the case for Governor Chris Christie. Uh, Ralph uh, is the author of For God and Country, The Christian Case for Trump. That uh, came out in time for the last election, uh, the election that uh, Trump still believes that he won the election of 2020, but the votes actually show a different story. Uh, first of all, Ralph, uh, you're, you're clear that uh, President Biden actually won that election in 2020, aren't you? 
Um, my position has been pretty consistent, and that is that uh, there was a lot of funny business. Uh, there were a lot of shenanigans, including mailing absentee ballots and mail-in ballots to every registered voter, including Pennsylvania, extending the time for which those ballots could come in to five days after the election in clear violation of Pennsylvania law. And I could go on, but it, there's no point. Uh, there's no, there's been no evidence or case litigated that showed that had those things not happened, that it would have changed the outcome of the election. But they clearly took advantage of a pandemic and gamed the system. And I genuinely do not believe the election was fair, but Biden won. Okay, okay. So at least we've got we've got uh, Biden winning without any question. I wanted to ask you. Uh, yeah, but I mean, I can just tell you this, Michael, and we don't we don't need to get off on this. But I know what happened in Georgia. They harvested ballots in apartment complexes and assisted living facilities in clear violation of Georgia law. So there were a lot of shenanigans, but Joe Biden's president. Right. And uh, do, you, do you agree that it's it's probably not productive at this point to replay some of the arguments about the election of 2020? Yeah, I would say the only thing that is productive that we've been doing at Faith and Freedom for the years since 2020 is pack, passing election integrity legislation in every state that we can. Uh, we've done it so far, Michael, in 19 states to make sure that what they did in 2020, they can never do again. And again, we're here to talk about something else. I can come back another time and talk about that. But and by the way, let me be clear about this. You and I have been friends a long time, over 30 years. Um, this did not begin with Donald Trump. It will not end with Donald Trump. If the Democrats can steal an election, they will do it. And that's not hyperbole. I lived through the 2000 campaign. They were going to keep counting in Dade, Broward, and Palm Beach until they stole that election. And the only thing that kept it from happening was us going all the way to the Supreme Court. So this is nothing new. It didn't begin with Trump. It won't end with Trump. Okay, in terms of uh, one of the things that Trump uh, said, he, he gave, he spoke for 90 minutes on Saturday night at Faith and Freedom, right? And, right. And the most striking aspect of his remarks was saying uh, that he got himself indicted for us. Uh, do you understand that? Well, um, I think what he's saying is that there's a two-tiered system of justice in this country and that the reason why the legal system is being directed so unfairly towards him when it wasn't directed, just as an example, towards Hillary Clinton in 2016 when James Comey falsely said in a news conference that he wasn't even authorized to hold and wasn't authorized to speak on behalf of the Department of Justice that no prosecutor would have ever prosecuted Hillary Clinton for uh, her misuse of classified uh, material on a homebrewed email server. Um, I think the reason for that is because 
Donald Trump stands and fights for the values that many of these people uh, cherish in their hearts and which animate their lives. And again, that didn't begin with him either. I mean, remember, in 1992, this was 31 years ago, a special counsel appointed by an attorney general named the incumbent president of the United States as an unindicted co-conspirator in the indictment of Cap Weinberger on the Thursday before the 1992 election. Um, That, in my view, was a tremendous abuse of power. It's one of the reasons why the independent counsel statute was allowed to expire. Uh, I saw many of my friends in the Bush 43 administration mistreated in the same way. The Valerie Plame investigation, which led to the indictment and conviction of Scooter Libby, and uh, which put Karl Rove in the legal crosshairs. So I think this has been going on for a long time, and I think the grassroots conservatives have had it, and they want it changed. Hey, even at the expense of, because I, I, I know that you understand, because you're a historian, that I uh, the attorney general is not supposed to be the creature of the president. He is not a legal representative of the president. He's a representative of the whole country. And sure. some some sort of independence for the Department of Justice is, is necessary, is it not? And, and by the way, it's fairly obvious that President Trump believes that some kind of independence is necessary because he... Uh, he had big problems and big disagreements with both of his attorney ge- attorneys general, both Jeff Sessions and Bill Barr, who sure uh, did. did not do Trump's bidding uh, in every case. Right. Um, you know, it's a, it's a complicated issue. It's it's something that would take a long time for us to discuss. But I I think, as I said, there's two sets of rules. You know, when John Ashcroft was attorney general. He appointed an outside counsel that investigated the Bush administration on the Valerie Plame leak. And you may remember that President Bush, my dear friend, a man who I have tremendous respect for, directed every member of the White House staff to cooperate fully with that investigation or resign. Um, Now we have a situation where, in my view, Michael, without knowing all the facts, you know, I only know what I'm seeing in press accounts. It appears that the son of the incumbent vice president of the United States either systematically violated multiple federal laws, including the Foreign Agent Registration Act, and who knows what else, set up shell corporations receiving tens of millions of dollars from foreign governments, including hostile powers, uh, and did so while peddling his access to the incumbent vice president. And, um, you know, all he's getting is a couple of misdemeanor pleas. Well, he's and, also getting uh, a pretty full dance card with an investigation very, very quickly, Ralph Reed. Uh, of all yeah. of the candidates who spoke at uh, the Faith and Freedom, is there one or maybe two who stood out as helping their cause? particularly through their address to the delegates there? I I think Trump did tremendously. Um, I think uh, Ron DeSantis uh, did a lot to help himself. He was extremely well-received. I think Nikki Haley, I think Vivek Ramaswamy, 
I think Tim Scott, and I think Mike Pence, who hadn't been to this conference in a, in a couple of years and came in and did outstanding and was well-received. It's a long list. Michael, we're not going to be endorsing in the primary. We're matchmakers, not kingmakers. We're going to let these voters decide, and that's why we invited them all, and that's why they all came. We gave them all a platform. And they... show uh, joined for a few minutes more with my friend uh, Ralph Reed of the Faith and Freedom Coalition and uh, one of the things that I think uh, struck everybody and it was a comment made by my producer Jeremy Steiner pride of Hillsdale College is that uh, the CPAC the Conservative Political Action Committee uh, is usually put forward as, uh, well, that is the big event other than a national convention in presidential election years. But I, I think in terms of the leaders of the party and virtually all the leaders of the party uh, coming out together to participate in the Faith and Freedom Coalition Road to a Majority Conference, that was... Uh, uh, this this last year, that's been the biggest uh, conservative uh, Republican gathering uh, anywhere, hasn't it, Ralph? In terms well, of the participation of party leadership. Been. I think it has been, Michael, and, you know, nothing against CPAC. I've spoken and attended many times, and uh, Matt Schlapp's a good friend, and I think ACU does a great job at, at CPAC, but I think in terms of the faith-based uh, constituency, which is, after all, the most dominant and energetic and dynamic single block in the Republican Party, if not in the electorate, I think Road to Majority ha has reached that point. And I think, as I said, we're fair to everybody. We don't put our finger on the scale. Uh, we try to facilitate a platform and an opportunity for every candidate and their campaigns to make their case and to build a relationship with people of faith and with faith leaders that is based on mutual respect and understanding. And we really believe, Michael, if we do that, that everybody wins. So, you know, we gave a platform to people that we don't agree with on everything. Um, and uh, frankly, some that we don't agree with on quite a few things, because we don't view our role as the one to screen these candidates for the voters. We're going to let them decide. And I think the success of Road to Majority Conference this weekend vindicates that that's a wise and, and, and good strategy. Well, Chris Christie was, uh, to some extent, I mean, I guess the, the one most controversial speaker that you had. And you pointed out that, yes, he was booed, and he told the crowd, you can boo all you like. But he describes himself as a person of faith, and he also got some cheers. What did he get cheered for from the representatives at Road to Majority? Well, he, he said that uh, Trump had let us down, and there were some boos when he, when he said that. And then he said, you can boo me all you want, but my faith and your faith teaches that we should be accountable for our actions. And we should take responsibility when we make a mistake. And 
He said, that's what our faith teaches, and that should be applied to everybody, including President Trump. And when he said that, he got applause and cheers. Now, I've noticed on a lot of news websites, they cut the clip off when the boos occur because they don't want to show him being cheered. It's another example of them driving a narrative that people of faith are, are wedded to Trump. They won't listen to anybody else. That's just not true. Um, you know, uh, he got a fair hearing. He was the first pro-life governor in New Jersey since Roe v. Wade. He defunded Planned Parenthood in the state budget every year he was governor. He's a good friend of this organization. He was really uh, received a very warm welcome other than that one line. And uh, in terms of the this new Gallup poll that just came out, it uh, yeah. shows that it breaks down church attendance. And church attendance has come almost all the way back from uh, where it was before the pandemic. Uh, it's still about five points below, uh, five percentage points below what it was in the pandemic. But among Republicans, 40 percent of all people who identified as Republicans said they had attended church, synagogue, mosque or temple in the past seven days, which I think is is more than people would even recognize. I mean, I know that uh, the exit polls, they generally say that evangelical Christians and uh, people who describe themselves born again Christians constitute 24 to 28 percent of the electorate. Well, here it is. Yep. It's 40 percent of the Republican Party, 25 percent of the Democratic Party. Yeah, I think uh, I think church attendance is coming back, and there's been a lot written and speculated, um, Michael, about the decline in church attendance in the overall population compared to, say, 30 or 40 or 50 years ago, and particularly among millennials and Gen Xers. And there's a lot of talk about the rise of the so-called nuns, you know, those who have no religious affiliation don't attend church and don't worship. I tend to be very glass half full in my in my view of those numbers. For one thing, it is always the case that single young people tend to fall away from church, and then when they get married and have children, they come back. There's nothing new about that. Secondly, even when you drill down in the numbers and you look at the people who aren't going to church, they say they believe in God, they have faith, many of them still read the Bible, and uh, we've just got a lot of work to do, not only with church, but with all institutions. There's been, a, there's been a, an, an eroding of trust in major institutions, almost everything except the military, Michael, and the church has been no exception. But again, if you look at the electorate, uh, evangelicals are 25 to 30 percent of the electorate. And when you add in frequently mass-attending Catholics, that is to say Roman Catholics, who are pro-life and hold to the teachings of the church, and they attend Mass once a week or more often, it's 40% of the entire electorate, the biggest constituency in the electorate, bigger than the black vote, the Hispanic vote, and the union vote combined. They're not going anywhere, and they're going to remain a vital part of the discussion in our country in civic affairs and public policy, and anybody who suggests otherwise uh, is, is kidding themselves. What do you make of the fact that even uh, among a lot of people who do appear to be believers, the um, 
there seems to have been there was a front page analysis about this in the New York Times but uh, a reduced support for the pro-life cause in other words it's still a powerful movement in America but it used to be evenly divided now they are saying that 61 percent of the people in this country uh, believe that uh, Roe v. Wade should not have been overturned in the Dobbs decision. What do you make of that? Well, you know, look, I think that uh, Dobbs was the most significant overturning of a longtime church precedent since Brown v. Board in 1954. And I think it was um, delusional to think that overturning a 50-year precedent of that kind that had been the foundation of abortion policy for a half century was not going to be a shock to the system. We knew going in that the polling showed that the majority of Americans didn't want to see that overturned. Uh, we knew that was what the polling showed, but it was it was wrongly decided. It represented judicial overreach. It represented an attempt to remove an issue that is a deeply moral and personal issue to tens of millions of Americans and remove it from the political and legislative process and resolve it by court decision. And that did not work. It only divided our country more. And as the Wall Street Journal said in their lead editorial, I think on Friday or Saturday, Michael, you know, you've got some states that have banned abortion since conception, most uh, re restricting it either after a discernible heartbeat or after the first trimester. 24 states have acted. Other liberal states like California, Illinois, and New York have liberalized and made them even more liberal. And you know what? That's called democracy. I may not agree with all of it, but I'm confident that over the next, you know, let's call it a five to 10 year horizon, that this will shake out and that people will come to understand um, that they got a say in the matter. And I think uh, those, those numbers will turn around. Uh, and uh, in, in terms of other issues, uh, what would you consider to be the priority issue for people of faith beyond the issue of human life? Well, I think uh, parental rights, uh, the ability of parents to have a say in their child's education, not limited to but including expanding school choice and making it universal. Uh, I think religious freedom, support for Israel, um, and growing this economy uh, and ending this inflation. I think those are all big issues for people of faith. Uh, Ralph Reed, a very busy time. Congratulations on your great success for Road to the Majority for Faith and Freedom and wishing you continued success for the sake of your family and our country, this greatest nation on God's green earth.